so this morning we are starting in Matthew chapter 14 okay so you can turn over to Matthew 14 verse 14 all right so 14 14 Corey Tenboom is anybody familiar with who she was okay yep so she her family during World War II she was uh, she was in the Netherlands her family and during World War II her family hid Jews in their home the whole family was taken to the concentration camps because of that all right and one of the things that Corey Tim Boom said which sticks with me and I think bears remembering is this you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have okay you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have and what we will see in what we will see in uh, the passages we're studying this morning they are familiar but there is a theme that is consistently running through it and it's that Jesus himself is the source he is all we need because he is God he's everything and we'll see that play out and we're going to look at little words in my in my personal devotions I've really kind of been getting caught up in little words little words like purpose or what we'll see today like little words like gave little words like drink and in these little words they have profound truth in the way that they're written in the scriptures okay so we'll get into that in a little bit but there is so much that we have in Jesus it's everything so if you're in Matthew chapter 14 verse 14 we're going to begin to look at how Jesus is the source, all right? Familiar passage. He's been teaching. The people are following him. And there's no food, all right? We know the story, right? This Not story, it really happened. We know this historical account. So let's read what it says. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I can imagine their faces, because we know what they said. What? No way. All right. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. We know a little boy brought them. Okay, that was his lunch. Seems like the little guy was the only one who was prepared for a long day with Jesus. All right. And he said, verse 18, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay? So let's just say, all right, most were married. We don't know that, but let's say most. Let's say most of the couples had a kid with them, all right? So let's just, very conservative estimate, let's just say 10,000 people here. Maybe it was closer to 15,000. We don't know, but there's a lot of people. So Jesus says, you give them something to eat, which is something they could not do on their own, right? There's no way. It can't happen. They didn't have the resources in and of themselves. All right? Jesus says, what do you have? Five loaves, two fish. That's it. You remember that the little boy gave them over to Jesus. And do you notice that it says that Jesus gave them to the disciples to pass out? All right? Okay, yeah, that's pretty obvious. The word there for gave is in the continuous uh, voice, okay? So what it says is Jesus kept giving the disciples the bread and the fish. And the disciples kept giving it out to the people. This is the point. In order for them to keep giving to the people, they had to keep going back to Jesus and he kept giving to them. They didn't just each take a loaf or a fish and run out into the crowds. It was going to dry up real quick. There was this consistently going back to Jesus and getting their baskets replenished by Jesus so that they could turn around and give them out to others. And when it was all said and done, there were 12 basketfuls left over. Each one of them had a big to-go bag, right? Josiah and I, we went to breakfast uh, yesterday morning and the portions were bigger than we anticipated. So we got our little to-go boxes to bring stuff home. Each disciple got a to-go box from Jesus. This is what we need to remember. What we have in and of ourselves is very little. And if we try to give out to others and serve others and serve the people around us and love the people around us in and of our own strength, it's going to run out very quickly, all right? But if we are constantly going to Jesus, giving him what we have so that he can multiply it and bless it, and we keep going back to the source, we keep going back to Jesus, he replenishes us, we can continue to give out, and we get filled and blessed as well. Isn't that awesome? I learned the hard way back when I was in ministry uh, early on. I was giving what I had, but not relying on the Lord so much. 
And that's where you get burnout. You're trying to do a good thing, but I just don't have enough. But Jesus does, and more. So remember this. Jesus is the source. And as long as we keep going to Jesus regularly, he will continue to fill us, and then we will be able to go and do the things that we need to do. Love others, serve others, walk with the Lord, resist temptation, whatever the thing may be, it's the connection to Jesus regularly that supplies our need, okay? Keep that in mind. And from this point on, we're looking at Jesus as the source for our lives, all right? If you go down, if we look at verse 28, again, we know this situation. The disciples are on the water. The storm is raging. They're freaking out. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. And Peter makes the comment, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out on the water and, and come to you. And so Jesus says, all right, come on out. Verse 28, let's look at this. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter's like, for me, I think, man, if I wanted assurance that it was Jesus out there and not a ghost, I would not say to him, hey, command me to step out on these waves and come to you. Okay, that, that's just not me. Okay, I would have said, uh, you know, like float in the air and come land in the boat or something like that. But I am not going on the waves. But that wasn't Peter. Verse 29, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith. I mean, such faith. I want to have that faith like Peter. Let me come out to you. But then Jesus says, you of little faith. Why do you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Okay, so do you notice, and you've probably heard this in church, you know, Sunday school classes and stuff, but as long as Peter was focusing on Jesus, everything was good, right? But when he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at the storm, he started doubting and going, hmm, I really shouldn't be able to do this. Huh, this doesn't work. Um, and he started sinking. And fortunately, Jesus didn't go, dude, you are so lame, and just let him go down. He didn't do that. He grabbed him, got him back in the boat, you know? And that is so cool how the Lord is so merciful and gracious to us. Again, keeping our eyes on Jesus. With the loaves and the fish, they kept going to Jesus to be refilled. If Peter kept his eyes on, on, the, on the Lord, he wouldn't have sunk. I take this to heart because I'm the kind of guy who tends to look at the storm, not at my Savior. And it's amazing, and you maybe heard me use this analogy, but my thumb's not really big, okay? 
but I can actually put this up in front of my eye and I can blot out the sun, which is much bigger. But it's because I'm focused on this little thumb that I don't have the ability to see the bigger thing. And so often we focus on the little problems and the little challenges and there's so much in our focal point, we've got tunnel vision with it, that we don't see how massive the Lord is and we freak out. Keep our eyes on Christ, okay? Now, going down to chapter 15, verse 1. And this is dealing with getting our eyes off of the Lord and the Word of God and focusing on traditions and man's things. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He sounds like somebody's mom, right? Did you wash your hands before you ate? You know, but uh, this is a religious tradition, okay? And he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is to be given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When we lived in Israel, uh, I went to Hebrew school. Okay, I learned Hebrew, uh, forgot pretty much all of it now. But I went to school every day. And any time before our lunch break, everybody went to wash. Okay, it didn't matter if your hands were dirty or not. It was ceremonial. And there's a special kind of little pitcher. It has two handles because you don't want to touch one handle with an impure hand and then, you know, wash your hands. We actually don't wash it. You pour. You don't want to touch anything. So you pour the little pitcher out over your hands to purify them, okay? This is tradition. So you don't want to pour over one hand with an impure hand, uh, impure hand on the handle and then with your clean hand touch the same handle that was touched by your impure hand and then try to wash the other hand. So it has two handles. Impure hand touches one handle, wash one hand, then you grab with your pure hand the other hand handle that's not defiled, and you wash the other hand, okay? Sound complicated? It is, all right? But it's tradition, and that's what they were going off of, okay? This wasn't mandated by God. It was tradition. And a lot of traditions that were in Judaism and still are today are not from God, they're man putting their own ideas, their own doctrines, their own dogmas onto the people and teaching them as if it's really God's word, okay? And this is so much a part of church today. 
within the church, we get so anchored into our traditions. Now, listen, I'm not dogging traditions. Traditions are good, okay? Traditions help with our identity. Traditions help with our appreciation for where we've come from and what we have and all of that. They're good things. The danger is when we put our personal views, our personal ideas before the Lord's, okay? And growing up in church and serving in church and doing missions and stuff like that, regularly I hear and I've heard, you know, people say, well, that's not the way that we do it, okay? Or we've always done it this way. This is how we do it. Well, okay, but, you know, the Bible says this. Well, this is the way we've always done it. Okay, you know. So we have to be very careful. Our personal views, our traditions, our policies and procedures should never circumvent the word of God, okay? A lot of church division and all and denominations and everything come down to divisions over man's ideas rather than holding to the word of God, okay? This is the source. Jesus is the source. And so, again, this is just coming back to him. And Jesus is rebuking them saying, you know, God says to honor your mother and father, but your tradition says, well, you can give what you were going to give to mom and dad to help them in their old age or in their need. You can give that to God and you don't have to take care of your mom and dad. And I read that and I go, boy, things have not changed too much in that, you know, you've got quote, quote, ministries who say, hey, give your money to me. All right. And God will bless you or whatever, you know, the health, wealth and prosperity teachers and stuff like that. That's what the Pharisees were doing. You give your money to us and don't worry about that. God will just forgive you for or, or he won't hold it to your account for not taking care of mom and dad. That's crazy. We need to hold to Jesus. We need to hold to his word. Now go over to chapter 16, verse 13. Okay. Who is Jesus? This is the question that Jesus poses to the disciples. All right. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and wherever, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So 
whether or not we look to Jesus as our source and our be-all and end-all, I believe is dictated a lot by who we see Jesus as. There are those in the church today that see Jesus as a good moral teacher. They see him as a uh, moral example. They see him as a friend to people, a messenger from God, but they don't see him as God. They do not see him as the only way to the Father. They have views that are different than the scriptures and what Jesus said about himself. And so if we have a skewed view of who Jesus is, we're going to relate to him in accordance with that view. This is what's going on here. There, in Caesarea Philippi, okay? All right, what does that mean? Has anybody ever been to Israel? Okay. Has anybody ever been to Caesarea Philippi? Okay. So, Caesarea Philippi, when you come into the main area, the worship area of Caesarea, it's a Gentile city. It was, okay? And there, when you, when you come kind of out of the walkway and stuff into the main area, there's this huge outcrop of stone, okay? It's, it's basically, and the, the closest thing that I can liken it to, which isn't close, is if you go to Devil's Lake and you look at the east side and you see the rock face where the people rappel off of and climb and everything, and it's just that sheer face of rock, okay? Think bigger, all right? But that's the backdrop for this situation, all right? This area was a place of pagan worship. There's a cave there that traditionally was seen as the birthplace of the god Pan. And there was all sorts of crazy stuff that happened there. All right. So with this backdrop, Jesus says, hey, guys, who do who do people say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Some... And then Jesus brings it down. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the son of God. And then Jesus says to him, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. There is a lot of debate about what that means. And I think it's really because people just don't understand their Bible and what it's saying here. When Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, he's not saying, Peter, you are the Pope. Okay, that's not what he's saying. The word for Peter is Petros, okay, in Greek. Masculine, it means stone. It can be a little stone that you can hold in your hand. It can be a boulder, okay? It's a stone, something solid. And he says, upon this rock, Petras, in Greek, feminine, the big gigantic outcropping of stone that loomed high in the air behind them was the example that Jesus was saying, this rock is what Peter just said, that Jesus is the Son of God. The bedrock 
the mountain that is immovable and unshakable is the gospel of Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're a rock. And upon the rock of who I am, which you have just declared, I will build my church. First time the word church is used. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we were in the Old Testament, you might remember that the gates of the city were the place where they had chambers. They were a stronghold. And they were the place where the judges and the elders of the city would come out. It was where decisions were made. Leadership met. Councils were formed. And so what this means is that the councils, the power, and the, the agendas of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Okay? And then he says, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. Again, that's not what Catholicism, it's not what the Catholics teach about him having the, you know, standing at the pearly gates and allowing who goes in and who goes out. I mean, who goes in and who doesn't. The keys are the entrance into the kingdom. Jesus gave Peter the opportunity, the first one to preach the gospel at Pentecost, right? To the Jews first, and over 3,000 were saved. Peter was also the one who opened the door, maybe I shouldn't say that, who presented the key of the gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, you remember Cyrus? Not Cyrus, I'm getting, I mean, um, Cornelius. Okay, and he's praying and the angel comes and then Jesus sends Peter to Cornelius' house and boom, this Gentile family is born again. The gospel, what Jesus is talking about, who he is and what he teaches, those are the keys. We have access. And I find it so cool that when you're reading Peter's epistles, what does he refer to us as? Stones. Okay? But not Petros, but a different word, they're building stones, the ones used for building the temple, of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So I love how Peter, just in his own life and in his own teaching, continues this idea of, of the stones. But Jesus is the source of eternal life. There's nobody else. And when it says, what you bind will be bound, and what you loose will be loose. Remember, we're reading Matthew. This is written to Jews. And so the rabbis would look at the, the law, and if somebody had an issue, and they were wondering, hey, is this lawful or not lawful? Then the rabbis would look at it, and they would either bind that person under the law, saying, yeah, the law says you have to do this, or they would loose them from the law, saying, no, the law gives you freedom in this. Okay? I was reading, and here's, here's one of the ways, here's a ruling, okay? Remember that if something died, whatever it touched was unclean, right? Okay, we learned that in the Old Testament. So, no joke, this is a case, all right? So, if you have a dog, 
and the dog dies in your house, your house is unclean and has to be purified. But if your dog dies outside the house, the house is clean, all right? But what happens if your dog dies on your doorstep? Outside, but at the doorstep of the house. I'm not joking. This is real, this is real law, okay? What do you do? How do the rabbis rule? Are you bound by the law and your house is unclean? Or are you free from the law? It's clean. It all depends on which way the dog's nose is pointing. I ain't joking, okay? If the dog is facing the house, the house is unclean. If it's facing the other way, the house is okay. No joke, okay? So when Jesus is saying to Peter and the disciples, whatever you bind on earth, the Greek is, has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven, okay? Basically, you are just communicating the things of God, the things of heaven to the people. So when they were writing the scriptures, they were telling us, the Lord was telling us through them, what is permissible under the, the word of God and what is not, all right? They were the ones who penned the scriptures for the Lord. They were the tools. So it, has, it all comes back to who's the source Jesus is the source. There was law and rules that the Pharisees had, but the word of God and the Lord was not the source. And it was a horrible burden to the people. Looking at your poor dog that you just lost, you know, and wondering, goodness gracious, how does this affect our family? You know, is my house clean or not clean? Can I go to the temple or not? As opposed to when we have the things of God laid out for us, that are focused on Christ, life is so much easier. Now, let's go over to John chapter 6, verse 25. Mark and Luke address the things that we've just read, so we're not going to go over them in those books. But we're in chapter 6, and John brings in some things about who Jesus is on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Just so you know, when it talks about Jesus feeding the 4,000, which was another event that happened later, it's the same thing. He kept giving, so they were having to keep going back to Jesus to get replenished. And so now Jesus is talking about how he is the source of the things that we need. In chapter 6, if we go down to, let's go ahead and... Uh, Go to verse 25. So Jesus has fed the 5,000 plus, okay? And the people are following him. They're chasing after him. And it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
Okay, and remember, this is on the heels of what's just happened. So Jesus was giving and go back and he gives and you go back and he gives. So this is, this is the backdrop that he's speaking about here. And they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they're chasing after him, not because they want Jesus, but Jesus is a means to an end. Okay? They don't necessarily want Jesus, but they want what Jesus can give them. Okay? Have you ever been in a relationship where the other person is in that relationship with you, not because they really care about you or want to be with you, but because they want to get something from you? You ever been there? That's not a good place to be. That's not a healthy relationship. Being in ministry and being in the church for a long time, this is a very common thing that I've seen. People come to church because, and I get it, but they want peace, or they want hope, or they want to go to heaven, or they want a need met. I had one conversation with a guy who started coming to church and said he believed in Jesus because he wanted a wife, and it wasn't happening, okay? It wasn't that he was coming for Jesus. He was coming because he wanted something. And I think initially, we all come to Christ because there's a hole and a need. And that's okay. But when we just want what he can do for us and not necessarily want him, that's a problem. When you go further down to verse 52, actually, let's go to 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him Give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. That's kind of heavy. Now, this is one of those word things eat and drink this is in the present active it's an ongoing continuous thing jesus says unless you keep eating me and drinking my blood you have no life in me it's this like we saw and we're, we're right on the heels of that feeding of the five thousand it's this continuous thing how often, I, I look at myself, sometimes it's like Jesus is the person who I catch up with when I have time. Rather than the being the one that I go to and always make time for. I get so busy and he becomes an addition rather than the focus of my life. If we're going to have a strong relationship with the Lord, 
We have to keep in communion with him. This is my body, which was broken for you. This is my blood, which was poured out for you. Communion, intimacy. When you take in the food, it becomes a part of you. It gives you energy. It gives you life. It gives you strength. And we have to continually be eating. We need to continually be feeding on Jesus. Taking him in every day, throughout the day. Because he is the source of life. And that's what he says here. Sadly enough, when you look at this, when the people hear that, the majority of the disciples leave. So it's possible to have people following Jesus, but not yielding to Jesus. Not entrusting themselves to Jesus. And so Jesus says to the twelve, are you guys going to go too? And Peter says, where else will we go? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not literal. Yeah. Yeah, it's what he's saying is, you need to be filled with me regularly. We, you need to be taking me in. It's not, it's not transubstantiation like you have with the Catholic Church where it's the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus and you, you take him in every week. No, this is all figurative, okay? But that being said, though, I think that that particular tradition, okay, I think that it has a good value in that it drives home the point that you have to be taking Jesus in regularly. You have to be feeding yourself upon Christ. You know, we forget that. We forget that. We just, I'll come to you when I need to. You know, you look, and I'm, I'm being serious here. You look at me, you can tell I don't have a problem eating, okay? Um, I have a problem not eating. Nobody has to tell me to go eat. But I think with Jesus sometimes, we just, I heard one pastor say, we treat him like a snack sometimes. Just a little bit of Jesus, but I'll fill my life with other things. Does that make sense? So, yeah, this is not taking communion, okay? Communion is a picture of constant, it's, when you eat that, it becomes a part of you. Jesus becomes a part of us when we take him into our lives. He actually, by his Holy Spirit, takes up residence within us. I don't get it, but he does. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will be in you. When I don't spend time with the Lord, I get weak. There's an old saying I heard growing up. One week without the Bible makes one week. One week without the Bible makes one week 
And if I spend time or don't spend time with the Lord and his word, I get weak because I'm not eating. I'm not getting my strength and my sustenance from him. Going on, this is driven home even more. If we go to verse 37, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the last feast of the year. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The word drink, present active. Let him come to me and keep drinking. Keep on drinking, okay? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. All right. If out of us, and he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, will flow rivers, the word literally is a torrent, a swollen river of living water, of the Holy Spirit. For a water or for a river to flow, water has to be going into it, right? And, you know, for me coming from Colorado with the mountains, like I'll, we'll go on walks and stuff and walk by the, the river here, and it moves so slow, you know? It's just like, wow. Coming from Colorado, the water moves fast. But that's because it's going downhill like at a crazy rate. And when there's the snow melt and the rains and everything and those streams and those gullies and stuff get filled with the water and they hit the rivers and wham, it just moves. The river flows because water is going into it and it is flowing out from it. And with the Holy Spirit, in order for the Holy Spirit to flow out, we have to be being filled, okay? When you look in the scriptures in the New Testament, it says several times, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, weren't they filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Yes, they were. But there's this continuing filling as they were praying and waiting upon the Lord and the Holy Spirit would fill them fresh. And then they were able to go and do the things of the Lord and, f and live for the Lord and all. Because they were being filled, it was going out. As I was looking at this this morning, I learned something that was just like, wow, that's really crazy. The root word, okay, for drink, and remember, Jesus says, keep drinking, okay? The root word for the word drink is, I mean, not drink, I'm sorry. The root word for the uh, word river, okay, is a word that is used for a drinking game. No joke. I read that and I'm like, what? A drinking game. What happens in a drinking game? People are taking in as much of what they're drinking as possible to do, outdo the other one, right? It's that idea of taking in and taking in and taking in and taking in. And that river, that torrent, that swollen river of the Holy Spirit flowing out from our lives. 
I want more of the fruit of the Spirit being shown in my life. And then I have to go, Lord, I need you to fill me more. I want anything, you know, we, we, had, we had beavers and stuff around the rivers near where we lived. And they would build their dams or trees would fall and things would get cluttered. And the little streams and creeks would kind of get stifled. And the water wouldn't flow. And I find myself saying, Lord, what's in my life right now that's choking off the flow of your spirit? Am I going to you to drink? Am I spending time with you that you might fill me up so that you might flow through me? Do I have a lot of garbage and junk and yuck and trash that's plugging up the stream? Help me get rid of it. So he's the source. And there's this idea of, again, taking from him regularly, consistently, and it going out, okay? And then going down to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. Word follows, that's in the present active. Whoever consistently follows me, regularly follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the source of illumination, okay? And so long as we stay in step with him, we're going to be walking in the light. John talks about this in his epistles. Let us be in the light as he is in the light. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light. This carries over. So again, he is the source of illumination, who we are, who God is, what truth is, all of it. He's the light of the world. And if we keep in step with him, we're not going to walk in darkness. I know for me, I have done my own thing and just kind of drifted from the Lord and just kind of got stale. And you know what? Things start to get kind of dark when I'm not walking with him. Not that I'm in, I shouldn't say I'm not in sin because I'm not walking with him, but it's just I get stale, apathetic, complacent. And things just get dim. My heart gets dull. But he's the light. And when I stay in step with him, I see myself and him a lot more clearly. I see others more clearly. I see the word more clearly. He illuminates. Now, keeping this in mind, go to chapter 9, verse 5. Now, before we do this, when he said, you know, whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. And that's during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Every day for the seven days, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, get water in a golden pitcher, bring it back up to the temple and pour it out before the altar in remembrance of how God provided water in the wilderness. Now you remember, Paul talks about how Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. He was the source of life. He was the source of water. So this is all focusing on Christ being the source. And so that's going on at the pool of Siloam. When Jesus said he was, you know, come to him and drink, it was the eighth day 
when they didn't go down. And that's when Jesus says, now, come to me. Look at what he says. He's talked about the light of the world. He's talked about um, filling the thirst. As he passed by, verse 1, we'll start there. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he sent him to the pool of scent. Okay. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I am the light of the world. He sends this guy to the pool of Siloam where they went to get water to offer before the Lord, showing, hey, we remember that you're the source. He sends him to that pool, which I will tell you, it's not an easy jaunt from the Temple Mount down to the pool of Siloam, okay? Much more so for somebody who's not able to see, all right? Did anybody see that uh, they're opening up the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem now? Anybody see that this week? So when we lived there, they had discovered it. And we couldn't go and check it out because it was starting the excavations. But they're getting ready to open it up for people to go see. And it looks really cool. So when you get home, if you're looking for something to do, just type in like a search for the Pool of Siloam and it'll show you some pictures of what they've unearthed and all. But they send him down, Jesus sends him down there. He comes back seeing. But he's never seen Jesus. And the Pharisees, with their traditions and everything, it's like, what happened to you? And you know the account. Well, Jesus healed me. How did he heal me? I told you how he healed me. He spit, he made mud, told me to go wash. And I see, you know, it was, uh, they just didn't want to believe. And I love how this guy, he is not a theologian. He is not a rabbi. He's not a scholar, a pastor, a preacher. He's a guy who was formerly blind. And all he's doing is giving his testimony. And the wisdom that he comes up with is just so cool because they're saying, well, Jesus did that because he's, he's got a demon, you know. He's not from God. And this blind guy is like, well, isn't that just incredible? You don't know where he's from. But never in all history has a guy born blind been given sight. And you wonder who he's from? We know that God doesn't hear sinners, so he can't be a sinner. And they get hacked at the poor guy. And they kick him out. They actually banish him from the temple. And Jesus comes looking for him. That's so cool. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy goes, show me who it is. I'm him. Oh, I believe. And from that point on, if you look at uh, chapter 10, Jesus goes on to just 
reaffirm and declare that he is God. Jesus is the source because he is God. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. We need to remember that we need to keep going to him. We need to be in his word. We need to be in prayer. We need to walk with him, listen to him. Peter hit it on the head. You alone have the words of life. If you're like me, dealing with the day-to-day things of life can be a real challenge. Everything from work, life changes, family, relationships, you name it. We need to be pulling from the Lord. His strength, his wisdom, his love, his grace, his power, his hope, his joy. It's all in him. So what I would encourage you is get to know Jesus more. Jesus said, if you seek me, you will find me if you look for me with all your heart. Actually, God said that, okay? But do we really look for him or do we treat him as an addition to life? I live my life, I go to church on Sunday. I live my life, I might read my Bible once or twice a week. May he not be an addition. May he be the foundation of our lives. As he told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus said that the one who builds their life upon the sand, they don't listen to what he said. The storm comes and the wind comes and the rain comes and the house falls because it wasn't built upon the rock. What are our lives built upon? Is it tradition? Is it religion? Is it just because we go to church because that's what our families have always done? Or are we built upon Christ Jesus? Have we taken him in and received him? And if you have not given your life to Christ, and I mean really just saying, Jesus, take it. Just take my life. I confess I'm a sinner and I need you. And I accept your sacrifice on the cross for my sin. That's how you start the building process. He becomes your foundation and he'll take care of it from there. We just yield to him. May our lives be built upon the rock of Christ. Amen.